Hey gamers, this is Blix. Real quick before we get the show started, I want to thank everybody for listening for the last two years. We are now into season three of the TriTag podcast, and I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are making it. We've got some really good shows already in the pipeline, uh, shows we've already recorded. Season three is going to be really awesome. Uh, we're going to start out the season early on after this show, maybe the next one. The whole series on gaming with your characters during a disaster, and they were really awesome. We got we got a uh, you know hurricanes and and floods and all kinds of cool stuff, and then uh, we we move right on into man-made disasters as well. And of course, we have to talk about plagues and zombies and such. So uh, you know, keep listening. Thanks for all the support. Tell your friends about us. Please write us a review on iTunes, uh, or, or at least rate us. Uh, the better, the more ratings we get, the better we do. The more exposure we get, the, the more people we can reach, and the more stuff we can do for you guys. So, anyway, thanks again. Enjoy, and I'll talk to you real soon. <laughs> Welcome to the Funkalicious, Funktastic, Tri-Tech Games Funkcast. This is Bruce. This is John. Yo, this is Blix. This is Trav. And this is James. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast that goes through the ages, having amazing adventures in all kinds of places. This week, we're doing the 70s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the 70s are doing <laughs> us. As we move forward and we talk about gaming in that decade. And we're talking about the 1970s, not the 1870s. We'd have to have a little bit more steam in the background for that, John. We have a wonderful guest this week, and it is James Carpio. And he is going to be our guide through the 70s because he's put out some amazing products to do just that. James, tell us a little something about yourself. Uh, well, hello. My name is James Carpio. I'm, uh, I guess, sole proprietor of Chapter 13 Press, kind of a small indie game publishing company. Uh, pieces of in California and some out here in Connecticut. I've been actually working on a project, and this goes back some years. It was originally going to be published uh, with the Artelsorian Fusion Rules back when, uh, a game called Bad Mothers, Tales from the Funk, which is kind of a little bit of a weird Lovecraftian horror mixed with black exploitation. And um, obviously the project didn't get off the ground. I had repackaged the product. It was going to go out actually as a um, a supplement for... Um, all flesh must be eaten. It was actually going to be a uh, 70s black exploitation supplement for that game, 
but unfortunately it just didn't kind of pan out. So now back on my side of the court, um, I'm actually now kind of fitting it to the Savage Worlds rules and going to be publishing it uh, hopefully sometime in uh, 2012 next year. Hey, uh, James, now that's going to be, as far as I know, that's the uh, the first product that's going to support the uh, Fringeworthy Savage Worlds. Yes, it is. Actually, um, we are, we've actually, uh, Blix and I, you and I talked about that at uh, TotalCon last year. No, and I'm totally down with that. Just for the fact that the game deals with portals into other dimensions as well, I think it'd just be a perfect fit. Cool. So we're, um, real quick, uh, and you get another chance to do this later on, but, um, but like, uh, tell us a little bit about your company, like where, you, where they can find you and, and such. All right. Uh, you can check us out at um, either uh, chapter13press.com, which is our main landing page. Um, you can also get to us by going to spookybeans.com, which is actually a, a non-70s, but uh, kind of an interesting uh, gothic Trump uh, comedy game. Uh, and last but not least, we just recently picked up uh, talesfromthefunk.com uh, to support our um, our black exploitation and seventies products, and we also have badmothers.com. So any of those uh, sites should actually bring you to um, in our landing page. You know this reminds this reminds me an awful lot of a lot of of the um, uh, user groups back in in the day when everybody was on Usenet, and it always <laughs> every time something happened, it always seemed that someone came out with some crazy sub group that you could go to and and post messages to like this. You have Facebook pages for all these? Um, actually, well, we have a we have a, we just actually I just recently put up a, a Facebook page uh, for Chapter Thirteen Press. I, I think I attempted to do one earlier, but my um, my skill with Facebook is kind of getting better as we go along. So I, I definitely someday will probably master Facebook at some point. Oh, I was, was going to say that's like uh, that's like Bruce was saying with the Yahoo groups. You know, Facebook is is kind of replacing that a little bit with the the, the Usenets. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, wow, I haven't heard of Yahoo groups being mentioned in a long time. I guess that's just how long since I've actually have been part or used one. All right, so uh, so what do we want to get into first on this? Maybe our guests could tell us something about why the seventies are such an awesome time period in which to have adventures of of, of the, no matter what your and maybe, you know, which genres would be really good for doing in the 70s? Well, Bruce, honestly, the 70s, in one word, it well, actually probably more than one word, but it, it was an amazing transitional time in, in uh, just, I guess, modern history and just recent history. Because if you, if you look at it, the 50s were very conservative. As you started building into the 60s, uh, the Cold War definitely got heavier. You started to see a lot more of the traditional stuff kind of fall to the wayside. You obviously had the um, the movement with the hippies and everything else going on. But it really didn't get to the, until you got to the 70s where you started seeing a lot more um, – I get just a lot more things going on uh, politically. Uh, just uh, our social consciousness just kind of went – in a completely different direction and anything that was conservative just started slowly chipping away by the end of it. I mean, if just take a couple examples, um, up until about 1974, if you looked in a newspaper for a job, you would actually see two sets of employment listings, one for men and one for women. 
And this was actually kind of a standard thing to see. And it wasn't until about the mid-70s that you started seeing a more unified just for like employment opportunities. Uh, in fact, if anyone remembers a commercial from the late 70s with Batgirl talking to Batman and Robin, we're going to Burt Ward and Adam West here, about how she felt that she wasn't being paid enough money for what she did. It was definitely something in the uh, the social consciousness of you know of the time. Right. The civil rights movement of the 1960s pretty much uh, petered out at the very beginning of the 70s, and it was replaced by the women's movement and the Equal Rights Amendment movement. So you know you you saw that was the thing that really seemed to go throughout most of the 70s was that struggle. Oh yeah, I mean, and that. The, the civil rights movement definitely led into um, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale uh, forming the Black Panther Party, uh, the rise of Malcolm X. Uh, I mean, that whole thing there. I mean, if you take it from where we left Martin Luther King Jr. in the, uh, in the 60s, I mean, that completely turned to another side of a coin as far as uh, the way things were handled. Uh, politically, we, we saw things like the Sibonese uh, Liberation Army. Uh, for any of those who don't remember that group, they were the ones who were better known for uh, kidnapping Patricia Hearst from Berkeley and, and brainwashing her. But uh, just to, you know, not to babble on too much about it, at least, at least not on the topic of, because obviously we want to get to the good stuff where gaming really kind of comes into it. But if you think about it, just using the political time of the 70s, using a lot of the incidents that went on in the 70s, you really have a whole smorgasbord of things to draw from. Um, what New York? We had the New York City blackout. We had the Son of Sam killings. Uh, we had Charles Manson and uh, you know Squeaky Froman crew and the murder of um, Sharon Tate. I mean, there's just so many things going on that... We had Watergate. Watergate. Yeah, but you guys are talking about all the serious stuff. You also had the fun stuff. You have, you have uh, Studio 54. You got Disco. Um, you know, you got a lot of other stuff. Like counter – like you got all the serious stuff going on and then you've got this like absurd counterculture going on as well. Oh, yeah. I mean we're talking um, Malcolm McLaren putting together uh, the Sex Pistols. Uh, punk rock is, is an amazing part of the late 70s that, you know – even though disco was the most popular, we had punk rock going on. We had kind of, I guess, the early heavy metal going on. I mean, Kiss was touring. My first album was Kiss Double Platinum. I bought in like 1977. The initial rise of pornography. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Deep Throat was the first movie that was advertised as a movie you could take your date to. And it's funny because the reason why that all comes about is because of one tiny little piece of technology. You know where where porn really takes off, and that's sort of the v, the birth of the VHS, which happens, I think, right in the late seventies, doesn't it? Yes, the 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 first commercial uh, VHRs come out in the seventies. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember as a kid going. We were thinking of buying one, but it was this huge. I mean, literally, it was huge. It was about two foot wide, about a foot and a half deep, and about a half a foot tall, and it took one tape. And it required all this. Basically, it had, it had all this technology inside to be able to, you know, do the scan out the tape and everything. It was just this massive device, which is now you can you can get a VHS player that fits in your hand. You can hold it in your hand. Right. Well, it they they got smaller. 
significantly smaller in the 80s because that's when I first started. That's when we started having video stores. So I would say the the, the bloom that you're talking about, uh, Blix, is uh, it happened in the 80s. But the actual production of the movies and the freedom to uh, put them on the air all over the place, advertising newspapers and various things like that. That happened in the 70s. Well, that was also when they started, that's actually think when they finally codified the movie rating system. And that was back when it was GP, not PG. You know, it was the original version of that. But the, the you know, that X, you know, X, G, PG, you know, and R was basically really got codified in the, seven, in the 70s. Before that, they were unrated. Also, another big um, thing within cinema and uh, our good friend George Lucas set the stage for something I believe he got sued over it was up until Star Wars, most of your Hollywood films had the credits in the beginning of the movie. And what Lucas really set the, the stage for actually putting the credits at the end of a film. If you really, if you go back and look at a lot of the, you know, pre nineteen seventy six movies, even you know, we're talking about black exploitation here. Shaft. If you ever watch Shaft, you're looking at literally seven to ten minutes of intro, which is just the credits, and then the movie just ends. You know, so again, another another change in the way things were done. Uh, you know, a good example of that. And that's also one of the things that came out. Lots of black exploitation films, uh, a lot of sex exploitation films, a lot of disaster films. Jaws came out. Uh, a little thing called Star Wars came out. I mean, it was really a huge. Um, it was the begin. Well, first of all, it was it was a huge increase in uh, technical films in the side in the in the area of special effects uh, and realism. It's a level of realism that we'd never seen before in films. But as also was a time of sense around. I remember going watch watching um uh watching uh tour 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 with the sense around speakers in the back. And yes, you 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 could feel your kidneys rattle when those suckers went off. So are we are we gonna you wanna talk about technology first or do you wanna get into what do you where do you wanna go from here? Technology is a is a good place to start. When you eventually get down to it um, the, the technology, cause again, we're looking at the rise of the computers here. I mean, computers have been around for, for ages up until the seventies, but now we're looking at them being more used a little bit more commercially and not so much on the back end. Um, when I was a kid, I remember watching, there was a place called control data Institute. Oh yeah. I remember those. Yeah. I have a graduate of that school. Oh, wow. Okay. And the there was a guy who came on. It was, it was a guy or a woman, and this big lab coat, and walking through the room with the giant reel-to-reel tapes. You know, talking about your career in computer sciences, and you know, back then it was like, wow, computers—these big giant machines that fill up, you know, complete levels of buildings. And you know, now a server room could be fit into like a you know a small ten by ten room. But still, the the computers. Um, someone was mentioning Six Million Dollar Man earlier, and you know, there's a great example of trying to you know shoehorn what they their vision of what the future was going to be into you know a, a television series. Well, you know, Six Million Dollar Man. We still can't do what they did. You know, what he could do. 
I mean, you can make fun with the slow motion, you know, the slow motion speed that he did. But I mean, the strength that he exhibited, his eyes, the mapping, all the the uh, special abilities of the prosthetics. I mean, all that was just great stuff, and we still can do it. I mean. They, they could have done the $6 million man today and it still would have run, except they would have done it, of course, with better special effects and better sound effects. So, But if, if you think about it, a computer during the, say, mid-70s had a maximum of 768 kilobytes of, of core memory. I mean, compared to what you know we can do now in talking of terabytes... Yeah, I know. My the calculator on my coffee table here <laughs> has more than those than those computers back then. It's how my much how, cell phone has more <laughs> has more memory. Yeah, how much did they say that it put a man up in space? One of those old landers. How much memory was that? Sixteen k less than what's in your car. Yeah, and it, it's just amazing that technology. And we look now, we're just like, how did we you know even do that with that little? Because of how we gauge what we know of memory is today with the terabyte drives and stuff. And we did this on 16 K and just you're, you're trying to reconcile that. And it, it's hard for some people. Well, actually, actually Trav, they used a lot more memory than that. They just used this thing called paging. It was this little tiny memory space at the 16 K and they just kept moving just massive amounts of data in and out of it to do these kinds of calculations. So, you know, it's, they, it's not quite as pathetic as it sounds, but at the same time, is that we what we could do? What took them weeks and even months to calculate, we could literally do it in a nanosecond. Ah, I mean, I'm I was a proud owner of a, of a TRS at, of, of a Trash eighty, level two at six sixteen k. In fact, I, in fact, Richard, I actually I gave when I left the army, I gave it to Richard, and I think in sometime in nineteen eighty. Six. I asked him if that thing was if this thing was still running. He says, "Oh yeah, someone has it. It's still running." <laughs> oh God, I remember. I remember seeing that when I went to his old place in Pontiac. I remember seeing a trash eight. I go, "Oh wow, I remember those." <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, it was the emergence of the uh, practical application of microprocessors, things that were actually usable. The the dawn of the of the belief that you really could have a computer in your home and it would do something worthwhile. It's where the late Steve Jobs got his start, really. Let's put this in perspective, okay? In the, in the 70s, you had a TV. It was probably black and white. And you probably had to wait for it to warm up. And you probably had to adjust the horizontal control because it would roll on you. You actually had to get up to turn the volume up and down and change channels and turn it on and off. I know, people, it's a shock, but yes... They didn't have remote controls back then. You actually had to move. Well, no, actually, I, I yes, it did. We had old Zenith black and white TV that had a sonic changer. It basically had two tuning forks. You clicked one, it would ch- it would it would go, it would change the channel up. You clicked the other one, it changed the channel down. You still had to get up to do the volume and all that. No, it's just a lot of people today. They can't imagine, especially the youngins. And unless you had that newfangled thing called cable, you only had four channels anyways that you could get, do. So it really wasn't that much of a chore. Yeah, and, and like Foxworthy says, and if the president was on, it was bedtime. <laughs> there was like five or six stations, and they went off the air at midnight or 1 a.m. or whatever. Test pattern. Right, they went in test patterns. Yep, and they came back on at 5 a.m. with the farm report. You know, I was going to say, someone was mentioning v- VCRs earlier, and um, I wasn't lucky enough to have a VCR, but I had RCA had something called the, um, it wasn't a laser disc, and I can't remember the name of it, 
It was called Spectravision. Oh god, I remember that vaguely too. And and it wasn't laser, it was like cross between magnetic and sort of optical and yeah, yeah, yeah. We almost but we almost bought an Odyssey for going back. No, the Odyssey was great cuz kids it didn't have graphics. All it had was the little, was the little dot. You had to have a TV screen of a certain size. We didn't have a big enough screen, so that's why we didn't buy it. And then you take a static clink overlay and put it over your TV screen, and there's your graphics. Wow. <laughs> that's right. I'd for, totally forgotten about that. Yeah. So, and but but the Atari Twenty Six Hundred did come out then, and the, it was quickly followed by a lot of other. You know, uh, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Odyssey. Yeah. So, yeah. Wait, so how does how do, how do we use this for gaming? I mean, we're talking about this technology. How does you, you got a character, or you're going to play a character? Say, let's just say you're playing Bureau Thirteen in the 1970s, and your Bureau Thirteen character has to deal with this technology. So, what does that mean? So, I'd like to start it out. I'll start out with the fact that he doesn't have a cell phone. So, when he's got a call home base, he's got to find. He's either got to go home or someone else's house. He's got a radio phone. Or he might have a radio phone. Um, car phones – well, car phones – yeah, car phones do exist, but they're different. Well, Blix, I think you're forgetting one of the major forms of communication during this time, the CB radio. Oh, oh yes. Oh, my parents had those. Yes. Breaker, breaker, right. 10-4, good buddy. So, so right. So I'm saying we got to think about communications differently. He can't just call up or text or whatever. He's got to get. He gets on a CB and he goes, "Yo, home base. This is you know, this is Shaft. I got, I got me some bad aliens here." Actually, he no. Actually, this was available. This remember, uh, fax. He could fax. Now I understand faxing probably was not in the home at the time, but we're talking bureau. So the bureau agents would actually have a fax machine. Okay. So so in other words, he would um. He would take a Polaroid of, you know, an Instamatic Polaroid of a creature and then, you know, fax it in and say, yo, I just killed this. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, communications are, are just they're, – they're, they're a little tougher but not impossible because, like, you know, like you said, uh, Drake, he's, he's got to have a CB. Now, now CBs have, have limited range, but you can have what's called a base station and he could have that in his car because, you know, he's a bureau agent, so he's going to have access to something like that. Or he has a car phone because I mean car phones did exist. They existed back in the '60s. But uh, John, you were saying something about the the radio based. How does it? I'm not really familiar with the technology. How does? How did the old car phones work? Oh, the old car phones. I think actually they were work. They worked off the ham ham frequencies. Okay. I believe I. Th they did. Think now, of course, it did. Yeah, and basically you had to. I think you had to get a ham license to have a car phone. Right, but you're you're also forgetting that there were computer terminals back then. You could dial in to mainframes over regular telephone lines using modems, where the phone, the handset, would fit into a little suction cup, into these cup-like cradle, and you could log on to an, uh, a a computer network somewhere, and you could go and send in your reports and and query information and and check on uh, messages and things like that. And this was early. This was before the massacre of 77 in the Bureau 13 history. So security was pretty low. So it was even possible that there were people out there hacking into the Bureau and finding some really amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the whole thing, oh God, what was it? Um, phone hacking. Yeah, freaking. Phone was back freaking. In the freaking. Yeah, yes. Captain Crunch. Now the reason why they called this guy Captain Crunch is because 
the tones that would switch over to international lines. Oh no, no, actually, it's the tone that switch into basically this called God mode. Okay, yeah, but I mean, you could sit there and basically call anywhere. That tone, the computer, dude, you could be duplicated with a little plastic whistle that you could find in Captain Crunch cereal at the time. The guy who really did that really well got the the computer moniker of Captain Crunch. So phone freaking, you know, if that could have been done, you could have hacked in, like Bruce said, could have hacked into the Bureau and found things that you weren't supposed to find out. Also, I would think that the Bureau, their technology, okay, let let me rephrase this correctly. Yeah, they had the 70s technology, but the Bureau always being ahead of the game at least a little bit, You'd kind of have to envision how their how they would see future technology. Now, from what Bruce said, IDET was not met until the 80s or 90s on Bureau 13 Earth. Right. Okay, so that you still had to deal with in the original incarnation. It wasn't until about like the eight, the the, the like 1980 or, uh, that they ran into IDET. Okay, so you still have to deal with unless it was straight out alien technology. Maybe a little bit of reverse engineered technology, but it would be a little bit higher. But but Trav, it also means that the uh, that since uh, IDED is twenty years ahead, that means that they had two thousand year technology, so they could hand that back to the bureau at that point. Well, yeah, but I mean that was in the eighties. I mean in the seventies, though, they didn't have access to the IDED, so they just no. But they did have access to some alien technology. They... Yeah, that's what I mean. They'd have to they'd have to like reverse engineer it, and so stuff would still be a little bit better than you know what. Mr. Mrs. Joe America would have, but nothing incredible, nothing... Yeah, yeah, instead of, instead of a 300-baud uh, acoustic coupler uh, modem, they would have a uh, maybe a 1600-baud uh, acoustic coupler modem. I mean, it would be a little bit better than normal, you know, it would still be enough to amaze people to see it, but no god tech, so to speak. I would imagine, um, you know, you know the movie, you remember the movie War Games, right? Uh, but that's eighty. That's eighty three, though. That's nineteen eighty three. I, I, hey, John, John, I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. J- j- ride the train with me. I was gonna say, I, I imagine that <laughs> a bureau agent would have a setup like Matthew Broderick did in War Games because he's a little ahead of the times, and that's just enough ahead of the times as I imagine it. You know what I mean? Sure. So I, I could see a bureau agent having those capabilities. Uh, about that level, if you wanted to picture it. I mean, that, that's how I kind of see it. You know, he's getting into networks, he's digging around, he can hack into things. He's a little more advanced than the other, than, than the guys in the 70s, but not like super crazy advanced. Right. And and Matthew Broderick in the show was using a terminal. He wasn't using a home computer to do this. Yeah, he was he was logging in using a terminal. Well, I think, I know, actually, I read about that. They actually did have... Uh, some computing capability, but it wasn't that much. It was just enough to handle his on-mag dialing and stuff like that. Right. I mean, it was the whole purpose of it was to be able to communicate over the telephone lines with a mainframe somewhere. And then once you were in that mainframe, if you were part of a RapaNet or Usenet or whatever, whatever was available then in your area, then you could go anywhere because those were all government-paid-for lease lines that didn't require any payment. So you could link over to somebody in California or even all the way over in Europe. It just depended upon what you were hooked up to and what your permissions were. So let's let's bring this down to the, the French worthy, because we, we like to we always like to bring that in. Imagine you're a French worthy character, you come into a seventies world. You probably even if you had a guy who was really good with computers, if he if he was a young guy with computers, he would kind of be lost here. He wouldn't know what to do. 
Well, a lot of computers are still being programmed with punch cards. Right, that's what I'm saying. I know because I took I took a class, I took a programming class in high school, and we programmed on punch cards. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, that you got let's say you got a computer expert on the team, and he gets into this world, and he's like, "Man, I, I don't know how to use these things." You know, it's lower tech, but it's so much lower tech that he doesn't even have a clue on how to use it. Yeah, and if it's a young guy, let's face it. I mean, if it were somebody even, as I said, mine and Blix's age, we're early forties. Uh, we've used computers, what, Blix, last maybe 15 years, 20 years of our lives? Something like that, 20-some years. Yeah. yeah, punch cards were beyond us. I mean, we had at the most a Commodore. Blix, obviously, is a little more technically advanced than I am, but I'm, you know, for sake of example. Well, I've never, I've never um, used a punch card. When I went to high school, we had, we had computers, but my class was the first class to have the non-punch card. They had just replaced them, so I missed out on that whole thing. Right, we had you know the big old grateful. blocky, <laughs> the big old blocky Apple computers with the and youngins get ready for this the five inch wide floppy disk. Oh, I had those. Oh yeah. We, had, yeah, we had that. So it's like, well, don't forget the, the Trash Eighty didn't have floppy disks. The Trash Eighty had a had a tape, tape recorder, like yeah. a regular cassette tape. Now the thing is, a lot of your favorite languages are are available during the seventies. Uh, Pascal was created in 1970, along with Fourth and and C was created in 72. Basic, of course. Basic, uh, basic predates. Basic actually is much earlier. Yes, but the point is that it was available. It was available. Yeah. Uh, so and small talk. Well, no one programs in small talk, so we can forget that. But this is not basic as you would get in, like, say, Visual Studio today. Uh, <laughs> it you would find it very different. I mean, the the term spaghetti code. Uh, came into existence uh, actually during the 80s because of the limitations of the programming languages back then. Now, if you're already unlucky, you run to a computer that's being programmed in B, which is the forerunner to C. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Uh, from a gaming standpoint, because uh, you know, most of our people listen to this for gaming uh, purposes, let's say I'm playing uh, a guy from you know, the 2000s, and he's a computer programmer. He's a computer specialist. And he's on the team for Fringeworthy, and they travel to the '70s world. And he wants to get he wants to get on a computer and use it in in the '70s. And we can speak in D20 terms, or we can speak. Uh, John, you can speak for Savage Worlds. How would you modify his role? I mean, what, what what kind of modifier would you give him? Well, well, considering that the passwords back then were probably only you know we're talking you're talking no more than eight, maybe ten characters. Cracking passwords would probably be a lot easier than they are right now. Uh, that'd be one the hack. So, so if you hook up, if you have your own computer and you can somehow hook it up to their network, you may be able to crack the admin uh, passwords fairly easy. In fact, you may be able to use the the ones we say don't use anymore, like God. And uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but but I mean, just no, just the standard operation getting through this system. He 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 hooks into it. He has to know how to hook into a terminal for. He has to know how to get into. It depends on the system. It really depends on the system. I, I, I I've actually have experience with uh, old IBM computers, with VAX computers. I got a guy. The character is 25 years old. Okay, he was born in 1985, and he's a computer programmer. It's entirely command line controlled. If you don't know the commands, heaven help you. Yeah, I mean, honestly, for Savage Worlds, I would even say that it would have to go unskilled. We're talking negative four to your, you know, D4. and. Uh... Uh, yeah, for D20, because I have, I just happen to have D20 Modern here in my lap, let's see. I would say definitely the defeat computer security 
you might want to lower the DC a little because the password, like you guys said, the password is a little easier to crack. You if you get a pa if you can somehow get password generation going, it'd be easier because you don't have as many characters. But due to the unfamiliarity of the system, other things on on the computer use skill, you would be taking a major hit. I'd say at least, I'd say about a minus five. Yeah, just raise it another level. Yeah, just add five to all the, all the difficulty levels. However, if he had now, this is where I would give him a caveat, and this is where you know you could you could say if you were playing an older character, you could take this. If he had like you know specific knowledge skill, you know old computer systems, I'd be a minus two. I'd be a minus two at that point because let's be honest, I unless you play with him every day in a computer in a computer museum, I'm a little bit rusty. I'm a little bit rusty on my CPM. Right, but that's why you wouldn't do that, okay? If you're playing a game like D20 Modern, you'd give them the feat, Computer Hacker, and it would all become magic. Oh, here's something. Okay, Bruce, uh, go with me on this. Uh, for ranks, let's say for every five ranks you have in com uh, Knowledge Technology, you have a plus two in computer use for, for old computers. Prob well, that could possibly be a related skill, yes. Skill Synergy, that's what I'm looking for. Because basically, because... Be honestly, uh, this is from a person who's been with, played with computers since well, personal computers were available. Uh, the the underlying tech, the underlying structure of the computer in terms of command structure and where things are put, really hasn't changed that much. It's just that in some cases it's it's a lot less accessible. Like on the, if you're on a Mac, it's really unaccessible unless you know unless you really are good at working with their with a terminal app. Uh, it's a bit more accessible if you have a do if you can get to a DOS prompt, but still, uh, if you if you're well versed on how to crack crack a mount computer, you pretty much are well versed on cracking an old computer because the old computer came from what? I mean, the modern computer came from what? The old computer. So the structures are there. Just that you're dealing with an arcane language. It's the operating system is where you're gonna have the problems with because the operating system. Yeah, it's it's a grand variation on a theme but it's all still basic very basic underlying principles yeah well that could be true however uh if you were if you were programming computers back then most of the time you just had to program an assembly code and assembly code had quite a few ability uh, most of the assemblers for assembly code had the ability to write to a variety of different machines and so the real hackers back then would literally were writing to the metal and they didn't have to worry about some of those things in the password sure man I'll write a little piece of code that'll run you know very very fast compared to any other language that people are using and that's what I'm saying is is that uh, at the time because the idea of computer security was very low. I mean, we were mostly worried. I mean, most computers weren't even networked that were important. Okay, so, you know, the, the ones that they cared about, they didn't even put on a network. They, you had to go into a room, just like in Mission Impossible, and get to that computer. But if they were networked and you knew how to you know, hack computers, you know, the, the world was your oyster. It was just, you know, they were the ones who kind of spoiled it for the rest of us. You know, that's the reason why later on we ended up having to get you know, uh, viruses and antivirus software was because of the lessons they learned hacking into the big mainframes. Hey, and, and, and let's, let's take that to the next step. So, you know, we talked about all the hacking and everything, but what's the end result? I mean, let's face it. Um, most information, yeah, but most information isn't online right now. There's only, there's only, 
what little bits of stuff online. If you want to look up, you know, someone's records at the DMV, guess what? You're SOL because they're all paper. Right. DMV doesn't have records online. I hate to say it. What you're going to find on a lot of computers and a lot of businesses back in the 70s are financial reports. Yeah, financial reports, you know, not even paycheck records. Right. And nothing about personnel or none of that kind of stuff. I mean, you, you might find some personnel stuff, but not like they're not going to have bios on people. They're just going to have John such and such makes this amount of money and he worked this many hours this week. That's what you're going to find. Well, no, no, actually, you're not, you're not going to find that. Because that's actually part of the, that's part of the control. That's part of their their either their punch card or, or it's on like a, on, a, on a tape. Oh, you actually, what you really right. want to do, you want to just grab grab one of the tapes and hope you got a reader who can read the tape because the tape will have the information you want. The computer itself doesn't. So what's beautiful about this age, about gaming in this age, is you have to break into the building. You have to do a physical, you know, you have you have to literally break into the building to get that information, um, which which is is cool because. You know, that's a lot of the 70s movies. That's what you saw uh, the guys doing, you know, slipping into the building. Climbing up the walls, going into the going through the vents in the, in the top. Right, and that and that's the fun part. Actually, you want to see an example. I know this is really off the wall, but it's from Star Trek. Do you remember the episode when they accidentally went back in time and they, were, they, got, they got involved with an Air Force air, a jet and all that stuff? Toward the end, they had to they physically had to steal the tapes that contained all the information right. about them appearing. Yeah, I remember that. They, you know, now they could for them breaking in was nothing more than a transport location. <laughs> but you know, besides that, you know, think about it, though that's exactly what you have to do if you want to get information. It's not in the computers; it's on these banks of computer tape. And you, and if you're fringeworthy and you and you're looking at an old IBM three hundred and sixty tape. What you gonna read it on? But on the plus side, uh, when if you, whenever they had information, there was usually only one copy. I mean, you it would be in a file drawer, and all you had to do is go in there and grab that file, and it's as if that information never existed. Yeah, because you wouldn't see too many backups. And another thing too is that uh, microfilm was still heavily used at that time as well. Um, to you know, find information. So if you look in any of the old, uh, like Bond films, either Roger Moore or um, Sean Connery, there'll there'll be scenes where they're going, "Aha! This is on the microfilm," and looking in those nifty little viewers to find anything from a newspaper article to, you know, possibly some dirt that they had on somebody. Right. Newspapers kept information on microfilm. You know, especially old copies of themselves. I mean, you didn't go down to a newspaper morgue and go through a big pile of old c copies of the newspaper. It had been put on the on the microfilm to be viewed by the various reporters as, as part of their research. This was also true at universities, but not so much because it cost a lot of money to do this, and the technology wasn't widely available. You had to have a special camera set up to do this. To, to actually, to shoot the role of microfish. It's, it's, it's called microfish. So, but yeah, I seen the, actually. I used to be a photographer. I used to take do amateur photography when I was younger, and I remember seeing the University of uh, University of Oakland in, in Michigan uh, set up for doing microfish, and it was this big. Basically, you had a big camera on a stand, and you then put the paper down, take a shot, advance the roll of film. You take you turn the page, take another shot, it, entirely manual. If it was a hundred, it was a hundred page book. You had to turn all 100 pages to shoot each one individually by hand. You know, it was a long, laborious 
uh, task. In fact, in some cases, I think they took the books apart to make it easier to take the pictures. So, so how's this cool for the characters? I mean, the characters, you know, they they, they got to get a piece of information from City Hall. They want to get, I don't know, they, they got to break in and get some blueprints for something. So they, so that, so what? The characters they they break in. They have to pull the blueprints out of a out of a file or out of a. Actually, be like a map, it looks like a map drawer. Right, a map drawer. Right, or what they call them plats. Um, they pull that out and they have to take pictures of it. Right. Right. So, and then take it back to their lab and have the pictures printed out and blown up. Exactly. Not, not like today, where you, you know you just pull it up on a lab. You know, you, you, your character would break in to the to the system, get into their CAD files or whatever, and get their blueprints, and then put them up on a big screen TV and you know make their plan. Most of the time, you'd be also recording it on actual film, not the the uh, Polaroids that John was talking about, because it, that was those Polaroid films took a lot of space compared to the smaller actual film cameras. So everybody, uh, if you if you were running any kind of an investigation, you either had a close relationship with a closed mouth uh, developing uh, lab, or you had to do it yourself. Uh, actually, that was the birth of the photomats. And that's when the small processors first started showing up. Now, when I say small, they they would probably would if you had one on board your 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 Winnebago RV, not the Colorado, but the Winnebago uh, RV, uh, it probably would take out the back end the back end of the bus of the the RV. <laughs> but still, you could process film. It would probably be in the utility van, John. Yeah, utility van because it's, it's it was big, but they still had the ability to do twenty four hour film developing. So your um, your Bureau Thirteen truck, you know, the, one of the guys might they might pull up the the photo lab. You know, you call into the base and have them, you know, bring out the photo lab. Right. And, we, and they could develop 8-millimeter uh, film or even possibly Super 8 uh, film in that as well as all your regular films and do your blow-ups and possibly even doing some of your more illegal uh, film compo uh, composting where you could take an image and put it with another image and create a scene that had never been there. But because people weren't familiar with it, they, you showed them a picture on film uh, uh, and that was printed out says, look at this, and they would believe it utterly because the idea of someone being able to do that kind of photographic trickery was really not known. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like no, it's, it's a picture. It has to be real. Photo retouching. Right. So, so do we want to uh, move on to uh, cars? How about, how about cars from the age? It was a wonderful age of muscle cars. Oh, my God. The 70s had best cars. Come on. So, so James, what kind of cars would, you, would your characters drive? Oh well, I probably my uh, probably the car I actually had. My first car was a 1968 Dodge Charger. Oh. <laughs> so Mopars are are completely awesome cars during that time. Uh, you know anything from the Duster uh, to the Satellite to the Charger. Um, oh man, dude, I want a 1970 GTO like nobody's business. Oh yeah, beautiful cars. Um, also, you've seen a lot of the um, El Caminos and the. Ford ripoff, uh, which was, I think, the no, it was Ranch, was it Ranchero? No, there was a no, no, the El Camino had the uh, did that have the uh, the the I don't know, the bed in the back, yeah, that was like the car truck, right? Right, but I know Ford did a version of it that was just it was just like a really bad ripoff of it, and I can't remember it. what was the one Subaru did it with the two Subaru Brat, I think it was with the two backward facing seats. That was late seventies, I think. Yeah, and also the seventies gave us wonderful cars like the Gremlin. Ugh. 
and thanks to a certain certain a certain man with a mustache, the Trans Am became popular. Oh, dude, the Trans Am! I would never, I would never earn one of those because it's like to me, it's like the ultimate in cheese. <laughs> but that is the ultimate seventies car. Hey, wh- wh- what was the General Lee? Uh, that was a Charger. Yeah, but don't forget, Lincoln Continentals were really popular in a lot of cop shows and, and stuff like that during the seventies. Oh, and Cadillacs! Oh my God! And of course, all the bad guys drove those too. If you were a bad guy, you had to be in a Cadillac. Come on. And the thing is, it wasn't even like really, it wasn't even bad fiction that these guys drove Cadillacs. I grew up in an area called Hunter's Point, which is a, um, I guess at the time was one of the ghettos of San Francisco. And there would be Cadillacs as far as the eye could see. It was almost just like, for whatever reason, it was almost like a parking lot of Cadillacs. I think both me and and uh, Trav can attest to the number of Cadillacs we see people drive. You know, I, I know I, lived, I grew up, I lived a lot in Pontiac, Michigan during the seventies. We, my parents owned a laundromat, and yeah, the number of Cadillacs you see driving on by or parking in the parking lot would be just amazing. Oh yeah, know. my dad worked at at gm for 40 years yeah so he was at the cadillac plant on clark street in detroit so oh and they would still have fisher body fisher body was still still the manufacturer of the of the, of the chassis for those vehicles and that's and that's when you had you know the 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 muscle car where people were were hooking them up with all kinds of stuff like you had hearst shifters and you had um uh, that's when nitrous oxide was really kicking in oh hemi was being coming famous at that point and too. hemi right hemis were becoming famous Friend of mine had a Trans Am, and I think he went through five engines in that sucker, and every one was bigger than the last. Also, another car that actually the movies in the '70s made famous is the Ford Galaxy 500, which was Dirty Harry's uh, car in many of those movies. Oh yeah, if you're if you're a Clutch fan, there's a song about Galaxy 500. Wasn't that the car in in Men in Black? And now I'm reminded of the line: "Unlimited technology from all over the universe. We're driving around a Ford." but that that wasn't the age of gas mileage oh no hell no bigger is better oh no these were huge compact car what was that that you saw that at the circus as the clowns were getting out oh no that was that was where honda was making their their debut in the late 70s with their tiny little cars okay and the gremlin would probably be considered a compact but i mean those were those were still rarities wait a minute hold on didn't we have in the late 70s, I'm trying to remember, John and Bruce, you remember this better, didn't we have like a really bad gas shortage and then all of a sudden people started buying these Japanese cars, this was a new thing and this is where Honda and Datsun kicked in um, and these, these Japanese car companies came out of nowhere. Right. The oil embargo uh, came after the uh, OPEC, which was uh, the, the oil uh, – the first oil conglomerate that came together over in the Mid-East. It was uh, the, or- oh, sorry to interrupt, just know the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, which was Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Indonesia, Libya, Algeria, Ecuador, and uh, the United Arab Emirates. So it was a huge, major conglomeration of um, oil exporters. Right, and that's where we saw the first major jump in gas prices, where it jumped like 20 cents, which were like, oh, big deal, 20 cents. But back then, gas, you know, didn't cost less than 50 cents. 
And when it suddenly jumped to 50 cents or 55 cents from 35 cents, everybody was like, oh my goodness, this is the end of the world. Gas prices are going through the roof. How can our economy stand it? And we were had all this posturing and saber rattling. And so the uh, OPEC said, oh yeah, you think so? Uh, you think you're in charge? Fine, you don't get any gas. And we had the oil embargo. Yeah, odd and even days that you can get your gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. We had rations and all that type of stuff going on. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking the vehicles because that's also the time of the uh, AMC Hornet, the Matador, the oh, the, the oh, and the Jeep Wagoneer. See, everybody's hearing AMC. All these AMC names, just for you know the younger listeners, they're all owned by Chrysler now. But AMC was American Motors. It was a fourth auto company that was around the 70s and sort of 80s and they went out of business and Chrysler bought them. Right, but but also the uh, Volkswagen Beetle was a big car back then. Oh, yes. Oh, Oh, we're still seeing 70s Beetles riding around like noob. Well, there was, hold on a minute, not just the Beetle, there was the Thing and the VW Bus. Um, And I think, didn't they stop selling the Beetle in the United States in the 70s, in like 77 was it? Oh no! Or was oh, it the eighties? No. Was it the eighties? A 80s? long time. I think it probably even reached into the nineties. I can't remember. No, 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 it didn't. But the seventies was was the introduction of the Superbug. Yes, right. That was early seventies. It was early seventies. Right. Because the original VW was very underpowered, and so this was them saying, "No, we're as good as the rest of the cars," and people uh, people believed them. But I mean, hey. So, so let's bring us back to the characters again. Let's bring us back to adventures. So, I'm the '70s character. You know, I'm super fly shaft, whatever wanna be. You're in your you're in your, your, your Cadillac pimp, your Cadillac fleet with well, pimp. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay. so, so that would be that would be super fly shaft. But let's say I'm gonna play a '70s character and I'm gonna play an action hero in the '70s. I, I'm driving. I'm thinking either a goat or a Dodge Charger. What, let, let's go around the table here. Our virtual table. Let let. You're, what are you driving there, John? What are you driving? Well, maybe a Chevy Nova, or uh, yeah, either a Chevy Nova or ah, maybe something a little bit more uh, ostentatious, a Lotus Esprit. Oh, you're going to go European on us, are you? All right. So, so what about you? What about you, Bruce? What are you driving? Okay, well, first of all, just one little thing here, okay, and that is is that as far as the VWs were concerned, it is noteworthy that in 1977, Kim Bassinger was in a show called Dog and Cat, okay, where she drove a VW with a Porsche engine in it. Nice. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That's right. People used to do that. Because Huge were, mag right. wheels and just, right. just, just tear it up. But no, me, I would uh, assume I couldn't get the Landmaster from Damnation Alley. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it actually was a real vehicle, you know, I mean, uh, but the uh, I would definitely go for a Plymouth Barracuda. Oh, nice. Good choice. Yeah, especially right. with a supercharger. So, so, Trav, what you driving? Well, a 70s campaign, I'd probably yeah. doing a, I mean, it's a little bit before, oh, 67 Mustang. Okay, that's good. You can do that. Yeah, sure. And, and what about you, uh, James? What you driving there? Well, either, like I said, I would I would definitely want a, a Charger or a Camaro. Cause Camaro's Cam- nice. Yeah, yeah, Camaros are pretty hot during that time, too. So. Super Sport? Oh, yeah. Hard top. The, the ones that were kind of boxy. Well, my Chevy, my Chevy Nova would be a convertible. 
Maybe red. So I'm kind of surprised. No, nobody here picked a conversion van because that was big back then too. With you know, like a wizard painted on the side and, and uh, oh, like a couch in the back. If this van's a rocking, don't right come knocking. <laughs> now I'm reminded of uh, Corvette Summer with Mark Hamill and Annie Potts in her van. Yeah, I've never seen those. I've never seen those vans, and you can tell you can, you can see the, the the windows they cut in the side. The weird windows, not square. They're weird. And you, and you can see the fur around the windows <laughs> on the inside. Oh, <laughs> well, come on. I mean, it makes perfect sense because if you're actually riding around in there, they didn't have seats back there. You're being thrown all over the place back there. You need padding, wait, man. Wait, wait. Na- Napoleon Dynamite. You know his brother? You guys have seen the movie, right? A couple remember- years. Yeah. Yeah, remember his brother had that, that conversion van and he had like the whole like, you know, he had like a whole setup back there. He could like live out of this thing. I remember one of my ex-girlfriends, her father was, uh, she was in a, he was in a van club and they used to meet, they used to meet up these, these van club people and they would, you know, they would, they would tweak out their vans and then they would go show them off and just hang out and drink beer with their vans. So, <laughs> right. With an eight track blazing, you know what I'm saying? Uh, eight tracks. Don't. Oh, oh. Oh yeah. Some of those vans had water beds and all kinds of stuff in it. It was just crazy. Well, no, no, no. Wait a second. Hey. Hey, 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 get off the get off the A track, okay? The the the, the late seventies were fully uh, uh, cassette player activated, you know. I mean, if you're if you're putting together a conversion band, you're putting a, a van, you're going to have the latest in in audio technologies. But I had an A track, you know, system uh, that I bought my senior year, which is 1974 of high school. So, but at that point already, people. You know, I'd go over people's houses and they were playing stuff on this tiny little cassette player yeah, thing. Yeah, I remember cassette. I remember that. I remember because we, we had a, we had an RV back then. Our RV had, had an eight track player on it. We finally got rid of it. But we got rid of it like, oh, geez, twenty years when we actually two years before we sold the van and like but uh, this is years ago. But yeah, we had eight track and we only had like six, three, no, three tapes. So he got kind of repetitive after a while. All right, so so all right, so we got our cars down. Fashion, absolutely. Um, I, I, I got the latest in leisure suits, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you got your elephant pants? No, don't have those. I'm wearing a leisure suit. It's a combo deal, man. Hey, look, look, I'm a cotton man, okay? I ain't going polyester. I don't care. It's the 70s. I know polyester's the hip. Well then, you're you're not getting then you're not getting any then because they were after the hot looking guys wearing the leisure suit. Hold on, wait, wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You just you just hold on there, sucker, because because my jeans my jeans are bell bottom with dragons going down the side of them. I'm sorry, Blix, but you know what? Bell bottoms passe. What you need is the flight suit. Yes, polyester flight suits were very popular. Wait a minute. What what part of the seventies? Hold on, what what part of the seventies? Are we talking early seventies or later seventies? Because early seventies, bell bottoms are still good. Right. All right. So if we're going to the later seventies, hmm. Ooh, what am I going to wear in the later seventies? Well, you don't have to. You could always go European and go silk all the way. Silk. Okay, I could do silk. Silk, I could do. Black exploitation. The time to Jane's black exploitation uh, game theme. Um. Actually, actually, a lot of suits were made of denim too. Uh, denim was. And quarterly. Denim, okay. Denim I could do. I, I could be a denim ranger. Yeah, the $6 million man wore a lot of denim suits. Yeah, he did. Right. 
but he came from a more Western tradition. So you kind of had to, you probably had to affect a den, a Western uh, a persona, I think, to really pull that off. If that's what I need. Well, it, no, no, we're talking, we're talking, well, we're talking guys enough. For for ladies, you're you're you can wear like a, a gunny sack dress, you know, or you can go for a mini. Although, hey, James. Yes. James, I I did play. Who did I play? What's her name? Sexual Chocolate. Oh, uh, Tanya Hot Chocolate, uh, Washington. <laughs> I think I did a pretty good job. Oh, you did. And lots of pastel color. And uh, all your stuff is in pastel colors. Very actual polka dots, too. Polka dots were really big back then as well. And, and stripes. And wasn't the American flag was big? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's yeah especially around 1976. Everybody had American flag stuff going. Yeah. Anyway, you you about to say James? Oh, um, no, I was just kind of uh, just talking of just going into fashion. Uh, dashikis were really big, especially when everyone kind of got into that. I want to be African, you know, phase of the 70s. Everybody uh, was just now asking their stuff. I was so going to say dashiki. I just was going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce and John have seen me. They'd be just going, really? <laughs> yeah, And afros. Guys, white guys were wearing afros. The perm was big with white guys. I remember, oh, was it uh, Room Two Twenty Two? There's a one, there's one redheaded guy with the afro the size of a of a oh geez, like you can't you have to. I got a guy in my Boy Scout troop with that afro. Now today, <laughs> wouldn't you say in the seventies that that beyond? I mean, maybe even beyond the sixties, fashion was passion. You know, there was, I because I'm looking. I remember. Okay, when I look at pictures from elementary school from like like on some of these facebook sites because i belong to one of these groups and it it basically it's for a school that i went to and i'm looking at the besides saying look at the hair besides that (laughs) right right but but it's the whole thing i'm looking at like our pictures from when we were kids in elementary school and pictures of like older people like in the 70s um even though i was in elementary school in the 70s but i mean even their pictures i'm looking and i'm like you know, you can tell there's a difference, a marked difference between our pictures and their pictures. It, it's almost like they had more fashion sense in the 70s, even though it was a different fashion than we did in the 80s. It seemed like the 80s were, I don't they just they just weren't as cool, like fashion-wise, as the 70s. No, 70s. no, the 80s fashions could stay there. Yeah, you were trying to make a statement with your clothing in right, the 70s. Right, and the hair, too. I mean, even the hair, too. You were You were identifying who you were. I found I pictures of myself dressed, and, and I'm going to have a long talk with my mother about this, looking through these pictures now, as in, what were you thinking? The very big collars with, like, the floor, like a light sort of cream color with flowers, and the big collars that, like, the tips of the collars went all the way to the shoulders, yeah. and just, oh, man, I saw these pictures, and granted, I'm like six, seven, eight. Nine and of course, my mom had to dress my little brother in a similar matching shirt, and I'm just looking. And I'm going because I'm I'm flipping through. I've got all my photo out. I'm just looking through this. I'm going. I was a kid. I didn't know any better. Just. <laughs> I think the '70s had better fashion sense than the '80s. I really do. Oh yeah, yeah. You look back at the '70s. You look at fondness. You look at fashion in the '80s, and just no, don't bring it back. Whatever celebrities thinking, just don't. Madonna did that, and it's oh god. There, that made it come around, and it was it was cool again. 
So speaking back to you know gaming in the 70s, then that means that you know if you're playing a character in the 70s, you shouldn't feel at all shy about going totally wild with your clothing. And you might even, if you have a team, you might even think about creating a team motif, and which nobody would pick up on, by the way. You know, I mean, everyone's dressed in pretty much a, a theme, yet no one realizes that you're all working together. Yo, the Tri-Tag Games podcast belongs to the bad mother. Shut you down. The tri Games. Listen up, you brothers. The Tri-Tag Games podcast is licensed under a creative commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. So don't go to anything bad or hunt you down. We are...